From New York, this is Democracy Now! The Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights revealed new evidence, previously unpublished, uh, that uh, for the first time presents what happened in Rabah from the official documents uh, of the dispersal, uh, documents that um, uh, formed uh, the basis for uh, the only official investigation to have been conducted into this worst massacre in uh, Egyptian modern history. In Egypt, human rights advocates mark the 10th anniversary of the Rabah massacre, when Egyptian forces opened fire on a sit-in where tens of thousands of people had camped out in Cairo to protest the ouster of Egypt's first democratically elected president, Mohamed Morsi. Some 900 protesters were killed. We'll go to Cairo. Then a secret Pakistan cable documents U.S. pressure to remove Imran Khan as prime minister. This document that we revealed shows for the first time how the U.S. used its influence to remove Imran Khan from power in 2022. The Intercepts now publish the secret cable, which reveals how the U.S. was upset by Imran Khan's position on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Then, the U.N. Security Council meets to discuss the Azerbaijani blockade in Nagorno-Karabakh and calls for the immediate reopening of the Lachin Corridor to allow for humanitarian aid for the roughly 120,000 people suffering severe shortages. A report by former International Criminal Court prosecutor Luis Moreno-Acampo finds the blockade amounts to a likely genocide. Let me, let me say exactly what he's saying. The, the crime of genocide could be creating condition of life calculated to bring about the physical destruction of a group for ethnic reasons. That is a genocide. And that's exactly what happened there. Because the, the blockade of the Latin Corridor has a purpose to starve its people. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The death toll from the devastating Maui fires has reached 111 and continues to rise as crews search areas in and around Lahaina. About a 1,000 people remain missing. On Wednesday, authorities in Hawaii defended not activating emergency sirens during the wildfire. This is Maui Emergency Chief. The sirens, as I had mentioned earlier, is used primarily for tsunamis, and that's the reason why many of them are found, almost all of them are found, on the coastline. The public is trained to seek higher ground in the event that the siren is sounded. In fact, on the website of the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, the firing guideline is provided. If you are in a low-lying area near the coastline, evacuate to high grounds. Instead of using the sirens, emergency officials in Maui sent out warnings to people's cell phones, but many did not receive the messages because the power and cell service was already down. Meanwhile, Hawaii's governor, Josh Green, has proposed a moratorium on land transactions in Lahaina. He said, quote, my intention from start to finish is to make sure that no one is victimized from a land grab.
Hawaiians have been warning about wealthy outsiders attempting to buy up land after the fire. Authorities in Canada have ordered all residents of the city of Yellowknife to evacuate as a massive wildfire approaches. Military aircraft will help evacuate some residents who cannot drive out of the city, which is the capital of Canada's Northwest Territories. The city is home to about 20,000 people. Yellowknife Mayor Rebecca Alte spoke Wednesday. There is a possibility that without rain, the fire reaches the outskirts of Yellowknife by the weekend. It is approaching, but there's time to complete the community evacuation. It's being called now so that we can allow people the opportunity to drive while the highway is open. The highway is subject to closures at any time, but it's likely that it'll be open until tomorrow morning. Conditions will be smoky and residents should drive with caution and care. A number of other communities in Canada's Northwest Territories have already been evacuated due to the fires. So far this year, fires have burned more than 33 million acres in Canada, more than double any previous season. That's an area equivalent to the size of Alabama or nine Connecticut's. Here in the U.S., a federal appeals court upheld restrictions on the abortion pill mefepristone, the most widely used method of abortion in the United States. The Fifth Circuit Court sided with the right-wing Texas judge and plaintiffs who argued the FDA improperly relaxed regulations on the pill to make it more accessible and that it should only be used up to seven weeks into a pregnancy and only issued in person. But due to a previous stay issued by the Supreme Court, mefepristone will remain available for now under current regulations while the case proceeds. The Justice Department's expected to appeal the ruling to the Supreme Court. In other abortion news, Indiana blocked a doctor who provided an abortion to a 10-year-old rape survivor from receiving a prestigious award. Dr. Caitlin Bernard, performed the abortion for the Ohio patient last year and spoke out about it to highlight the cruelty and real-world impact of banning abortion. She was reprimanded and fined $3,000. More than 60 asylum seekers are feared dead after a boat carrying migrants was found drifting near Cape Verde off the coast of West Africa. The boat left Senegal over a month ago with 101 people on board. Most of the passengers were from the same Senegalese fishing village. Officials believe the boat may have been headed to the Canary Islands, which is part of Spain. According to the Spanish group Walking Borders, at least 778 migrants have died this year attempting to reach the Canary Islands. Defense chiefs from the West African regional bloc ECOWAS are meeting today and tomorrow in Ghana to discuss a possible military intervention in Niger, where the military seized power last month. The Intercept is reporting U.S.-trained officers have been appointed to head five of Niger's eight regions under the new military junta. This comes as the United Nations is warning international sanctions could worsen a growing humanitarian crisis in Niger. In Niger, our humanitarian colleagues are concerned about the potential impact of the ongoing crisis on the food security situation. Before the coup, over 3 million people were already severely food insecure, 
And according to the World Food Program, some 7.3 million food insecure people could see their situation worsen due to the unfolding crisis. Humanitarian exemptions to sanctions and border closures are required to avert a rapid deterioration of the food security and malnutrition situation. In other news from Niger, at least 17 soldiers have been killed in an attack near the Mali border. In recent years, the region has seen a surge in violence by groups linked to al-Qaeda and ISIS. In Libya, at least 55 people have been killed in the heaviest fighting between rival armed factions so far this year in Tripoli. Over 150 people were injured before a truce took hold on Wednesday. Libya has been in a state of crisis for over a decade since the 2011 NATO-backed operation to topple Muammar Gaddafi. In Sudan, the army's second-in-command has said a plan to end the deadly conflict needs to be negotiated and a caretaker government must be formed, as the fighting between the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces rages into its fifth month. The U.N. this week issued a dire warning as the number of refugees who crossed the Sudanese border topped one million. In a joint statement, U.N. agencies said, quote, Time is running out for farmers to plant the crops that will feed them and their neighbors. Medical supplies are scarce. The situation is spiraling out of control, unquote. Reports of sexual violence have increased by 50 percent since the start of the fighting, though this is likely a significant undercount of the true toll. This is the spokesperson for the U.N. Refugee Agency. Out of the conflict in Sudan on the 15th of April, over 4.3 million people have been forced to flee. This includes over 900,000 refugees and asylum seekers who fled to neighboring countries and 195,000 South Sudanese forced to return to South Sudan. Within Sudan, over 3.2 million people have been internally displaced, including more than 187,000 refugees already residing in the country at the start of the crisis. A high-ranking NATO official has apologized after publicly suggesting that Ukraine could give up some of its land as part of a way to end the war with Russia. Stan Jensen, the chief of staff to the NATO secretary general, made his initial comment during a recent forum in Norway. He said, quote, I think that a solution could be for Ukraine to give up territory and get NATO membership in return, unquote. Officials in Ukraine blasted Jensen's comment. A woman in Texas has been arrested and jailed after threatening to kill federal judge Tanya Chutkin, who is overseeing the Donald Trump January 6th case. Security has been increased around Chutkin, a black woman who was appointed by President Obama and has issued some of the toughest sentences for January 6th rioters. Meanwhile, supporters of Donald Trump have posted online the purported names and addresses of the grand jury members in Georgia who voted to indict the former president and 18 co-defendants. The Fulton County Sheriff's Office has not said if any security precautions have been taken to protect the grand jurors. Meanwhile, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis continues to face an onslaught of racist abuse online, instigated by Donald Trump, who's repeatedly attacked her on the campaign trail, calling her a racist. On Wednesday, Fannie Willis, who's the first black woman to serve as Fulton County DA, proposed the Trump trial begin March 4th. 
A local prosecutor in Kansas has withdrawn the search warrant used by police to raid the Marion County Record newspaper. The raid sparked national condemnation. In a statement, the Marion County attorney said there was, quote, insufficient evidence for the police to raid and seize material from the newsroom and home of the paper's owner. Items seized included computers and cell phones and hard drives. They will now be returned. On Wednesday, the Marion County Record published its first edition since the raid. The banner headline on the front page read, Seized but not silenced. This comes as the community prepares for the wake and funeral of Joanne Meyer, the paper's co-publisher. The 98-year-old longtime journalist died Saturday, one day after the police raid on her home. Her son said she died of stress. In North Carolina, Republican lawmakers in the state Senate and House have voted to override vetoes from Democratic Governor Roy Cooper and enact three bills targeting trans youth. One law bans gender-affirming care for youth. Another bans transgender girls and women from playing on sports teams in middle school, high school and college. A third law restricts how gender identity is discussed in schools. It's been described as North Carolina's version of Florida's Don't Say Gay bill. The group Equality North Carolina decried the three new laws as a slate of hate. Hundreds of people marched to the school board of Miami-Dade County in Florida on Wednesday to protest changes to how black history is taught in Florida's schools. The new standards require students be taught about the benefits of slavery. One section of the curriculum states enslaved people, quote, develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit, unquote. Florida governor, Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis, has defended the new curriculum changes. Speakers at Wednesday's rally included Tennessee State Representative Justin Pearson, who made national headlines when he and his colleague Justin Jones were expelled from Tennessee's Republican-dominated legislative body. They have since both won their seats back in the Tennessee legislature. And an emergency court hearing is continuing in Louisiana over calls for authorities to transfer children being imprisoned at the notorious maximum security Louisiana State Penitentiary, known as Angola, which was built on a former slave plantation. Advocates say children as young as 14 years old are being held in solitary confinement and are being deprived of their education. Most of the children are black boys. This is Alana Odoms executive director of the ACLU of Louisiana. Children are currently being locked away in cages at Angola. Children, not youth offenders, not juvenile delinquents, not throwaways, not people without value. Children are children. Children are being deprived of an education. Children are being deprived of humane conditions. Children are being shackled and handcuffed. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. 
And I'm Nareen Sheikh. It's so wonderful to be back here in the studio with you, Amy, after more than three years. Uh, it's absolutely amazing to be sitting side by side with you, Nareen. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show in Egypt, where human rights advocates are marking the 10th anniversary of the Rabah massacre. It was August 14, 2013, when Egyptian forces opened fire on a sit-in where tens of thousands of people had camped out in Cairo to protest the ouster of Egypt's first democratically elected president, Mohamed Morsi. Human Rights Watch estimates over 900 protesters were killed in what the group has described as the, quote, worst single-day killing of protesters in modern history. No one has been held responsible over the past 10 years. The Minister of Defense at the time was Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who's ruled Egypt for nearly a decade and is a close U.S. ally. Under al-Sisi, Egypt is now jailing about 60,000 political prisoners. This is Democracy Now! correspondent Sharif Abdul Quddus in 2013 on our live broadcast the day after the massacre, describing what he saw. Yesterday was, uh, you know, a day of violence and chaos and bloodshed, the most violent episode that I've witnessed as a reporter in Egypt for the past two and a half years, uh, walking around Nasr City, which is the northeastern neighborhood in Cairo where the Rabat al-Adawiyah mosque was located. Uh, you could hear the crackle of machine gun fire intermittently in the air. Uh, there was uh, tear gas on the outskirts and in uh, the sit-in that mixed with black smoke rising from tires. Uh, set alight by the protesters. You know, the Interior Ministry had spoken for uh, a couple of weeks about the plan to disperse the sit-in that would uh, go in stages and first involve uh, surrounding the protesters and then a gradual escalation. But by all accounts, uh, all the witnesses I spoke to have said the attack started sometime around uh, 6.30 and uh, came in very hard with tear gas and the casualties started pouring in, uh, most of them with live ammunition, uh, very soon after after that, the scene inside uh, the main medical facility in Rabah was uh, extremely tragic. People were being brought in, the dead and wounded, every few minutes. Uh, there, the, the floor was slippery with blood. Uh, the, the windows were closed to prevent tear gas from coming in, and it was almost unbearably hot. And the dead were everywhere. Uh, and in one room alone, I counted 24 uh, bodies just strewn on the, on the ground, packed so closely you couldn't even walk in. Uh, on another floor, another 30, and on another floor, another 8. Uh, doctors were overwhelmed uh, with the casualties. So it, it was a very uh, difficult situation. And, uh, and one that I think will have uh, deep implications for Egypt's future, not just for years, but for decades to come. That was Democracy Now! correspondent Sharif abdel in 2013 on our live broadcast, the day after what has become known as the Rabat massacre. For more, we go to Cairo, now 10 years later, to speak with Hossam Bagat, the founder and executive director of the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights, EIPR based in Cairo. They've obtained a leaked copy of a government report on the massacre that implicated Egyptian authorities in the mass killing. It accused security forces of, quote, indiscriminate and disproportionate use of live ammunition and concluded, quote, the largest number of Rabah victims were innocent civilians who were most likely peaceful demonstrators. 
Hossam Bakat also worked as an investigative journalist for the independent outlet Matamasler. He's been banned from traveling outside of Egypt and had his personal assets frozen. We interviewed him last at the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. He couldn't leave Egypt, but he was able to address uh, the folks that were there. Hossam, it's great to see you again. Can you talk about the significance of what this report is? Who did this report within the CC government and what exactly it found? Um, thank you, Amy. It's good to be back. Um, th this is a, a, a very significant uh, document, uh, not just because of the conclusions it reached, uh, it reached and, and the, the recommendations that it put forward, but because it is actually the only official inquiry uh, that has been conducted for the last 10 years into this massacre. Um, obviously, in 2013, um, after the military takeover, um, the, the military authorities at the time did not have any interest in launching this inquiry. But for six months, um, um, they were under a lot of uh, pressure to do something, not in order to establish accountability, but in order to avoid an international investigation or universal jurisdiction accountability or personal um, liability. So at the time, they set up this official um, uh, commission, um, and it had six um, members, most of them judges. Most significantly, um, the secretary general is uh, was appointed to that committee to lead um, its day-to-day -day work and take responsibility for the drafting of the report um, is currently President Sisi's Minister of Justice. Uh, of course, because of the banning um, conclusions of the report, although the report does fault both sides um, and does go out of its way, uh, to also blame the protesters, blame the leaders of the protest, blame basically everyone, it still um, could not avoid really reaching the conclusion that um, there was no safe passage, that the that this was an uh, overwhelmingly peaceful um, uh, protest, that the majority of those killed were peaceful protesters, not armed elements as the government has been claiming for the last 10 years, and that the shootings were not precisely aimed and at times um, really were indiscriminate and definitely disproportionate with the threat to life, even if it were true. Um, but the most important and the most damning conclusion there is that the committee actually heard official testimony from the field commander of the operation, who at the time was the director of special operations um, uh, in the interior ministry. And he gave official affidavit where for the very first time, he says on the record that peaceful um, alternatives to um, dispersing the sit-in were considered and abandoned before the operation. This is the first time that we get this um, official admission, and they actually identify things like, um, you know, um, cutting off uh, electricity and water uh, or um, allowing uh, protesters to leave the protest but not to go back in, etc. And in the end, they say that they chose to send um, the anti-riot forces uh, and to implement the dispersal in one day um, as opposed to the three-month plan uh, that had been considered and disregarded. This is uh, the most important conclusion of this uh, report. The report, of course, was never published. 
um, uh, for the last um, uh, nine years now, uh, since it was handed over to President Sisi, um, uh, who, uh, you know, is pictured receiving the report. Uh, and we're not surprised because the key recommendation in that report is calling for a full judicial investigation. This is a committee uh, that was uh, formed only with a very limited mandate of collecting evidence, hearing testimonies, analyzing events. It did not have the right to subpoena uh, evidence or um, uh, state officials, and it did not have uh, the authority to refer cases to uh, trial or um, uh, assign responsibility. And therefore, the, their conclusion was that this is not enough. Our work is not enough. There needs to be a full judicial investigation. This is the recommendation that was never made public. It was actually omitted from the executive summary that was uh, published nine years ago. And now we know why. Um, the regime, uh, of course, has had 10 years to hold people to account. Instead, it did not even question a single officer, soldier, or state official as suspects in these killings. And instead, it arrested, prosecuted, and convicted over 700 of those protesters that survived the massacre, uh, the vast majority of whom are currently in prison still 10 years later, serving life sentences with at least 12 people on death row having lost their final appeal. So, Hossam, could you uh, elaborate on the enduring effects of both the crackdown and, as you point out, this reigning culture of impunity whereby no one has been held accountable? Amnesty International, as well, has said that the last 10 years can only be described as, quote, a decade of shame. The Rabah massacre was a turning point following which the Egyptian authorities have relentlessly pursued a zero-tolerance policy of dissent. So if you could, if you could talk about that, the, the continuing crackdown on dissent and, in fact, its intensification uh, after the massacre 10 years ago. Of course. I mean, again, as we last uh, discussed um, when we were in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt um, has been going through this unprecedented human rights crisis. And you can really trace the origins of this crisis to the day of the massacre. Um, the, the massacre established a new normal where it, it's not just um, that uh, you know hundreds of people could be killed within 12 hours in broad daylight in the presence of local and international media without a single person being held accountable, but it's also that it happened with popular support. And this is really, for me, for us, the reason this has been a decade of shame is that overwhelmingly there was no outcry. There was a... Um, um, you know, th there was no active involvement from the population, but there was certainly a degree of acceptance, um, admittedly, you know, resulting from months of dehumanization and propaganda um, campaigns. Uh, but ultimately, um, you know, we did not say not in our name, because um, it was a moment when people decided that um, it's OK for their rights and freedoms to be suspended. Um, and that, you know, the leader knows best and that we're going to let him thrive. Uh, and now the Egyptian people are again overwhelmingly waking up to the result of this bad deal. 
poisonous deal that they made because they allowed one person to rule for 10 years with no free press, with no opposition parties, no parliamentary oversight, no judicial oversight, no public demonstrations on the streets, and no civil society. And look at where it got us now, the worst economic crisis in Egypt's history with no prospect for improvement, with actually expectations for things to get worse, with a leader that is refusing to take responsibility for any of it uh, and increasing daily suffering. So for the first time today, people are waking up to the fact that they agreed to the terms of um, this deal and that it was to their detriment, not just to the detriment of the victims that were most immediately targeted. And Hussam, how have uh, uh, people in Egypt responded to this report? And also explain how is the position, what is the position now of uh, members of the, the Muslim Brotherhood or people who were previously supported uh, uh, Morsi? Um, the findings of the report uh, came as a shock. And for the last three days, uh, uh, of course, it's been... Uh, the topic of discussion um, on social media, because, I mean, media, uh, traditional media and, and even uh, websites have been completely, um, um, you know, nationalized uh, by CC. Um, and um, and, and it, it's coming as a shock um, for particularly two segments of, um, you know, the audience. Uh, first is people who really believed the propaganda 10 years ago and, you know, stopped thinking about the massacre, its repercussions uh, for the last few years and are only now able to read what happened, not from reports of independent journalists or um, civil society investigators, but from a report of a government-appointed committee with a staff of current judges led by the current Minister of Justice. Uh, but the second segment that is really acting in complete shock, but also anger and outrage, is young people. And this is a very young society where, of course, we have a vast majority, demographic majority of people who are under 30. So many, many uh, people on social media are just simply too young to remember, did not watch the, the, the news coverage at the time, did not know what happened. They know about the events as the Rabah events. <laughs> they don't even um, uh, have a grasp of, um, of really what actually happened. So again, um, they're, they're acting with um, the natural shock uh, because frankly, you know, we were there um, and we went through this um, and observed it. And even to us, it came as a shock to read these official testimonies. The prime minister at the time, Hazem Biblawi, is actually... Giving, has given testimony in that report where he says, again, on the record, that the number of those killed that day was below their expectations, the expectations of the planners of this dispersal. So it's really hard for the government now to stick to its false narrative for the last 10 years that it only acted out of necessity after facing fire from armed protesters. Um, for to your question about where the Muslim Brotherhood is uh, right now, um, the, many of the senior leadership are, of course, in prison or serving uh, sentences. Uh, but the entire uh, the, the, you know, leadership structure uh, of the organization is now um, based out of um, Turkey and Europe and, and elsewhere. Um, but, uh, of course, the young, the rank and file members 
uh, of Muslim Brotherhood and beyond people who are just either supporters uh, of um, former President uh, Mohamed Morsi or simply accused of being um, um, so, uh, are now in, in the thousands in prison, uh, with the most conservative number being, um, you know, around 30,000 of them. Uh, Hassan, we just have a minute, but two quick questions. The people who are on death row now, if you can give us some sense of who they are, and you yourself, I mean, President Sisi may be reconsidering uh, keeping you in Egypt, uh, but your own circumstances for people to understand something we came to understand well in Sharm el-Sheikh, that you cannot leave the country, based on what? Well, um, I've been, together with other colleagues from the human rights movement, uh, under investigation uh, for 10 years now, over 10 years. And for the last uh, seven years, as part of that investigation, as a precautionary measure, uh, I have been placed under a an open-ended travel ban with my assets frozen and my bank account um, uh, frozen uh, since then. Um, uh, again, as uh, as I said before, I consider myself lucky still uh, that this is the uh, small price uh, that I have to pay. Uh, but I'm also um, in no rush to leave Egypt. Uh, of course, uh, uh, um, I mean, I, I, uh, uh, I can't deny uh, the influence, the impact uh, of these unfair measures against me and, and my colleagues. Uh, but at the same time, you know, We've been around and, um, you know, we've changed four um, administrations and presidents uh, now and we've outlasted them. So we know that this will ultimately come to an end. And if it doesn't, we want to have contributed to bringing this to an end. Hossam Bakat, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Founder and executive director of the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights, EIPR. He is based in Cairo. He's also worked as investigative journalist with the independent media outlet Matamasser. And you can go to democracynow.org and see our interview in the offices of Matamasser when we were in Egypt. Coming up, the U.N. Security Council has met to discuss the Azerbaijani blockade of Nagorno-Karabakh and calls for the immediate reopening of the Lachin Carter to allow for humanitarian aid for the roughly 120,000 people suffering severe shortages. We'll speak with the former International Criminal Court prosecutor, Luis Moreno Acampo, who says the blockade amounts to a likely genocide. Stay with us. ايه العمل الظلم صار مش محتمل والحد امتى هيبقى ويعيش الامل وسط الرصاص انا بتعصر ايوه صحيح مش بنكسر لكن ساعات في الياس والخوف بتاسر فين الخلاص الخلاص هو يقيني اننا نقدر نعود وان صوت الحق عالي وانه اقوى من البارود 
What to do by Yasser Amanogali. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. The UN Security Council met Wednesday to discuss the blockade imposed by Azerbaijan in Nagorno-Karabakh as Armenia and other nations called for the immediate reopening of the Lechen Corridor to allow for humanitarian aid for the roughly 120,000 people suffering severe shortages in the breakaway region. 23-year-old English teacher Nina Shavardian, a resident of Nagorno-Karabakh, described life under the blockade. We don't have gas, we have electricity blackouts. So, um, for example, at five o'clock, we will have a blackout again, so we will not have electricity for two hours, and then this is repeating itself. We don't have water because we have only one water reservoir, which is used right now to produce electricity. And it's not enough. So right now we have also water shortages. And because of the water shortages and electricity shortages and no gas, the bakeries don't work. So uh, there is not enough bread even in the shops. That was Nina Shavardian. She also noted there's a shortage of fuel, further isolating those who are not able to walk or walk long distances. A recent report by former International Criminal Court prosecutor Luis Moreno Campo found the blockade amounts to a likely genocide of the local Armenian population. Azerbaijan has rejected the accusation. Tensions have been running high in Nagorno-Karabakh since December of last year when the blockade started. The crossing has been totally sealed off since mid-June. The population of the disputed region is majority Armenian, but it's part of Azerbaijan after Azerbaijani forces regained control of the territory in the 2020 war, leaving the Lechen Corridor as the area's only connector with Armenia. Well, for more, we're joined by two guests. In Boston, Anna Ohanian, professor of political science and international relations at Stonehill College, is joining us. Her latest book is The Neighborhood Effect, The Imperial Roots of Regional Fracture in Eurasia. And joining us from the capital of Colombia, Bogota, Luis Moreno Acampo, Argentine lawyer who served as the first prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. He also was the deputy prosecutor in Argentina's trial of the Juntas. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Luis uh, Moreno Acampo, we last had you on uh, with the Oscar-nominated film 1985 that really told your story as you went after um, uh, the uh, coup leader, uh, essentially, uh, of Chile, um, as you went after um, Pinochet. Right now, you're talking about Azerbaijan. Can you talk about your findings? It's very basic. Uh, some Armenian people ask my expert opinion. I have experience. I prosecuted for genocide, President Bashir for Darfur genocide. And it's very simple because the facts are exposed by the International Court of Justice who said to the Azerbaijan they cannot blockade the, the corridor that provides food and other essentials to the Armenians living in the region of Nagorno-Karabakh. So it's very basic. I, I just, the fact that are there, it's just saying the king is naked. You know what? The International Court of Justice say, as the is blocking 
the essentials for the life of these Armenian people. And that's exactly, exactly what Article 2C of the Genocide Convention say. The genocide has different forms to be committed. Killing massive numbers, one, A, but C, require no results. It's just creating conditions to destroy the life of the group. And that is what happened today in, in Azerbaijan. That's why I, I, it's, funny, it's funny because it's like a shock, but it's obvious. It's a genocide today. The question is, no, is now not debate genocide. The question is prevent the killings, prevent the death of these people. You, you present one of the victims in a few minutes, I, I will be in a press conference with the people of Nagorno-Karabakh eh, by, by Zoom. So they are there and they are dying. So what we do? And that's a question, because I was listening to your show, and when you have a national crime, you have judges and prosecutors. When George Floyd was killed, you have judges and prosecutors. Here, there is no judge or prosecutor for this genocide case because the International Criminal Court has no jurisdiction. So the U.S. Security Council is the only global institution who can solve the problem. And the problem there is there are tensions today, as obvious, between Russia, U.S., and France. These are the three key actors. If they agreed how to manage the problem, they stop this genocide in one minute. And that's why... It's interesting. Here, the solution is very, very simple. It's an agreement between the U.S., France, and Russia to stop the genocide. It's easy. And my last point is, Ukraine is a big conflict. It's a big crime. But Armenian victims could not be collateral damage of the Ukrainian conflict. Could not be. We should not accept a new Armenian genocide in 2023. So, uh, could you explain, uh, elaborate on that point, uh, uh, what you mean when you say that the Armenians who are uh, stuck in Nagorno-Karabakh should not be collateral damage uh, of the war in Ukraine? If you could uh, talk about that and then also say you say that you uh, based your decision on the uh, your findings on the decision taken by the International Court of Justice earlier this year. Explain what that decision was. It was legally binding. And what followed that decision? What happened as a result of what the International Court of Justice found? Okay, starting from the second question, the International Court of Justice, which is a court who deals between states, received a request from Armenia against Azerbaijan, based not on genocide convention, based on a treaty against discrimination. So the International Court of Justice is not analyzing genocide. It's analyzing a different treaty against discrimination. But in this case, since February, since February, for the last six months, the International Court of Justice gave a binding order to Azerbaijan to free the blockade of the what is called the Lachin Corridor that provided food and the essentials for the life of the Armenians in Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan is refusing. In fact, it's still off completely since June. And that was not just as the International Court of Justice say. In July 26th, the Red Cross say that. 
since June, we provide, we cannot move nothing from the Lachin corridor. So that's are the facts. And this is genocide creating the conditions. The solution, as I said before, and why the, the Armenians are collateral victims, because the solution is an agreement between US, Russia, and France. If they agree that they will stop this, they will do it. Because they cannot agree, they just call for negotiation. Remember, in the Rwanda time, an ambassador say, calling on negotiations in, in no, sorry, in Severnica, when they talk about the Balkans. So talking, talking about negotiation is to asking the Jews in the concentration camps to negotiate with Hitler. That is. So this is a good moment. It's a time for President Biden to transform and stop a genocide. We have great people in power. President Biden is the first president, U.S. president, who recognized Armenia 1915 was a genocide. Yesterday, the, the Armenian ambassador in the, in the U.N. Security Council meeting said, we need not just commemoration, we need prevention. And what Secretary, General, Secretary of State Blinken, who has a family affected, and we have Samantha Power, who really wrote the most important book on how to prevent genocide. But Samantha Power, in her book, says something very important. She explained how every time a genocide happened since 1950, through the Jewish genocide, there's always reason to not be involved in the denial. How, how many efforts the political leaders are doing to deny the genocide. And that's why my report was basic, say, the king is naked. It's a genocide. Now, the solution is political. The leader had to agree to stop the genocide. That's a chance. Mm-hmm. I'd like to bring in Professor Anna Ohanian, uh, a professor of political science and international relations at Stonehill College. Uh, professor Ohanian, if you could uh, uh, respond to the ongoing uh, crisis in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and what you understand occurred at the meeting, uh, Wednesday's meeting of the UN Security Council yesterday. Professor Ohanian, are you there? Uh, sure. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation. So uh, what has been transpired? Yes, Please. I am. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Hello? We can hear Hello? you perfectly. Can, can we, you can hear hear, we can hear okay. you perfectly, so, Professor. So um, the emergency meeting at the Security Council is... Very good. Thank you. Um, the... In addition to the severe humanitarian crisis that the uh, blockade, the siege of Nagorno-Karabakh Republic by Azerbaijan has created, the genocidal violence essentially that has created, as described uh, by Mr. Ocampo, it also is taking place in the context of broader use of violence in the region. In 2020, when Azerbaijan with the, with Turkey's backing, uh, engaged in an offensive on the Nagorno-Karabakh entity. Azerbaijan was victorious, emerged victorious, recovered the territory surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh as well as parts of Nagorno-Karabakh. The November 9 agreement, as your uh, previous speaker mentioned, uh, created and maintained the Lachin Corridor connecting Nagorno-Karabakh with Armenia. What this, uh, 
peace process has been continuing since then uh, by the Western European Union. Uh, United States has been very, very active. This is in parallel with Russia's continued attempt to remain relevant and provide security with its peacekeeping troops inside Nagorno-Karabakh. But what is transpiring with the siege, with the blockade, the use of hunger as a weapon is, is uh, demonstrating is that Baku essentially, Baku's strategy is to consolidate the victory it has achieved in the battlefield through the use of non-kinetic, non-tools that are not directly violent, such as the weapon as a hunger, in order to coerce the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh conflict to either relocate soft ethnic cleansing or to fully submit to Azerbaijan, which Azerbaijan government refers to as integration. The key here, uh, I think Baku's objective is to not engage, to not provide political accommodation to the entity. And this is an entity that has been a de facto state, has been a self-governing uh, unit since, since the first Nagorno-Karabakh war ended in 1994. And it was part of, uh, as a result of Stalin's gerrymandering, this entity was given to Soviet Azerbaijan. But even then, as part of Soviet Azerbaijan, it was an autonomous republic self-governing. So the siege, the hunger, is an attempt to uh, eliminate, to not engage with the entity politically. And in that respect, it's quite dangerous. Using hunger as a weapon um, essentially creates the conditions of hybrid war. And as such, it's very dangerous, not just for the Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, but also for other conflict regions in general, much more recently, that strategy was also used in Ethiopia uh, relative to the Tigray population in its north. So it's quite troublesome as to what is happening. And it's devastating also because there is an opportunity um, that Azerbaijan has in moving towards pacifying the region. Um, there are various actors involved in um, this historic opportunity, considering that Russia has weakened, creates an opening in moving the region forward. And as such, it is a historic opportunity because Russia for all, almost a century has been using interethnic cleavages to you know, tensions to remain relevant. So geopolitical stakes of a peaceful, um, a principle, dignified resolution of this conflict uh, remain significant. Anna Ohanian, want to thank you for being with us, professor of political science and international relations at Stonehill College, joining us from Boston. And Luis Moreno Acampo, Argentine lawyer who served as the first prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. He also was the deputy prosecutor in Argentina's trial of the Juntas, a correction. He was also featured in the film Argentina 1985, um, which was about the trial of the junta against the leaders of the Argentine coup led by Jorge Rafael Videla. This is Democracy Now! Coming up, The Intercept reports a secret Pakistan cable documents U.S. pressure to remove Inran Khan as prime minister. Stay with us.
पता क्या है मुबतला मेरी नजर के शिकार में ये तो पता तुझे है भला सब है तेरे इख्तियार में by the Pakistani musician Abdul Hassan. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We end today's show with a new report by The Intercept. Secret Pakistan cables document U.S. pressure to remove Imran Khan. It follows up on their recent story that begins, quote, the U.S. State Department encouraged the Pakistani government in a March 7, 2022 meeting to remove Imran Khan as prime minister over his position on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The cable describes a meeting between the Pakistani ambassador to the United States and two State Department officials that Imran Khan has repeatedly cited as leading to his political ouster after a no-confidence vote in parliament believed to have been organized with the backing of Pakistan's powerful military. The meeting came after then-Prime Minister Imran Khan arrived in Russia on the eve of its invasion of Ukraine last February 2022. He could be heard telling a Russian official, what a time I have come, so much excitement, as he arrived in Moscow's airport. On the day Russia ordered the invasion, Khan went ahead with his scheduled meeting with President Putin. The State Department officials present at the meeting, described in the secret cable now published by The Intercept, included Assistant Secretary of State for the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs, Donald Liu, and Asad Majid Khan, who at the time was Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S. The cable says Liu raised the issue of the no-confidence vote, quote, I think if the no-confidence vote against the prime minister succeeds, all will be forgiven in Washington because the Russia visit is being looked at as a decision by the prime minister, unquote. Liu continued, quote, Otherwise, I think it would be tough going ahead, and said Khan could face isolation by Europe and the U.S. should he remain in office. For more, we're joined by Murtaza Hussein, senior writer at The Intercept. Can you lay out what you have found? So this document has been the center of Pakistan's political crisis for the past year and a half. For the first time, we've actually seen what it says, and what it seems to reveal is very extraordinary pressure which was put by the U.S. on Imran Khan over his stance on Ukraine, which in that document, uh, U.S. officials referred to as aggressively neutral. So shortly after this meeting depicted in this document, known as a cipher in Pakistan, took place, Imran Khan was removed from power in a no-confidence vote, which State Department officials had not just encouraged, but actually threatened Pakistan over that uh, should Khan survive that vote, Pakistan would be isolated, and should he be removed quote, all would be forgiven. So Khan himself had been saying for the past year and a half since his removal that U.S. officials have played a very integral role in encouraging the Pakistani military to take him out of power. And now that we've seen this document for the first time, it does seem to validate many of his claims about the events which led up to his removal from power last year. Well, I'd like to go, uh, Murtaza, to uh, uh, a political activist, uh, Asim uh, Sajjad Akhtar, who Democracy Now! spoke to on Wednesday. Uh, we got his response. He's a long-time left-wing political activist. And we got his response to the report in The Intercept. This is part of what he said. I think The Intercept story is much ado about nothing, at least in Pakistan. That's... Um, and I'm talking about critical progressive circles. I'm not talking about government or or the PTI or, or IK supporters. The truth is that IK fell out with the military, and that's the reason he was booted. I mean, what he really wanted to say was that Bajwa wanted me out, but he couldn't say that at the time, as the right tends to do everywhere. And IK is a classic example of a populist right-wing demagogue. Um, 
you know, steals the anti. He's not even anti-imperialist, but he's an, he at best could have called himself anti-American. And of course, we um, didn't have the kind of. Um, or don't have the kind of purchase, especially in the mainstream media, to be able to say, well, no, a real anti-imperialist looks and does, you know, X, Y, Z. So that's uh, Asim Sajjad Akhtar, left-wing political activist in Pakistan. If you could respond to what he said, and also, you know, a question that's been raised a lot in the Pakistani media, namely that Pakistan had already long been isolated uh, well before this. I mean, Biden didn't even give uh, uh, Imran Khan a call after he was elected. So if you could, if you could respond. Well, first thing to understand, it's a very polarized political environment in Pakistan, perhaps more so than it's been in many, many decades. So people's perceptions of this reflect that polarization inside Pakistani society. I think looking at Pakistani history, one thing which is undeniable is that the military does not make a move. The U.S. is effectively part of the governing compact of Pakistani society. At the time this meeting took place, Imran Khan was already on thin ice with the military. He'd fallen out with them after initially having his rise sponsored in part by their support. But as we see in this document, the, U, the military was waiting in many ways for some sort of green light from the U.S. Had they not gotten that green light, or had the U.S. said that we have no position on Pakistan's internal politics, it's much harder to imagine the subsequent adventures took place. And one thing which is very important that we learn from this the disclosure is that it specifically was about the war in Ukraine and Pakistan's foreign policy, which is usually part of the military's ambit. And after Khan was removed, we not, didn't just see a change of power. We saw a very distinct change in Pakistan's stance on the Ukraine conflict. Just a few days before he was removed, General Bajwa actually gave a speech contradicting Khan's stance, which was very neutral on the Ukraine conflict. And now Pakistan has emerged as a major supplier of arms to the Ukrainian military, brokered by the United States. So you have to take it into the broader context which has taken place in the year and a half since he's removed from power. And now Mr. Khan, who polls show is the most popular politician in Pakistan, one way or another, is specifically being jailed and banned from politics to prevent him from taking part in elections expected for later this year. So what we're seeing right now is a very thoroughgoing uh, development towards a full-blown military dictatorship in Pakistan, which is taking place with the support of ostensibly democratic parties who have co-signed the marginalization of democracy in Pakistan for many years to come. Murtaza Hussein, I want to thank you so much for being with us, uh, senior writer at The Intercept. We're going to link to his piece, Secret Pakistan Cable Documents U.S. Pressure to Remove Inran Khan. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Fels, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Tarina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen, Honey Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive directors, Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Shea. <laughs>